like many of you, the greatest form of entertainment that my parents had to offer us children growing up in the 90s was wrapped up in this one singular phrase. Go outside and play. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Growing up, uh, I was literally, we grew up literally surrounded by cornfields. And so we, one of the greatest forms of entertainment that we could devise or figure out was to annoy our siblings. There wasn't a lot else that we could do, so we just figured out ways that we could annoy each other. So once when my sister was in the driveway, she was sitting in the car, the car was on, I put my head through the window, I rolled the window up so I could get my head stuck, and I, then I just stood there because I thought, man, this will really annoy her. And you're like, this is the guy that's going to speak the Bible to us today? Yeah, it is. And my sister Olivia, to my surprise, is a lot smarter than I thought, you know. And so very quickly, she just turned the keys, took the keys out of the car, and ran inside to get her camera to come and take pictures of me. <laughs> and maybe some of you are thinking, this thought has crossed your mind, what were you thinking? If you have kids, if you've ever been around them, this is a phrase that often is in our vocabulary. What were you thinking? The other day, my kids were playing, and they picked up this mantra of let's annoy each other. I don't know where they got it. It must be their mother. And so they picked this up. And so one kid, we have this giant stuffed animal. One kid's laying face down, belly on top of this animal. And the other kid just came, grabbed it, and went just like that. And that first kid that was laying down went like that, nose onto the ground, and just started wailing. And you go, what were you thinking? I wasn't thinking. Some of us do things, and you think to yourself, what was I thinking? Did I really think I could carry all those groceries in and not drop any of them? Why didn't I just make two trips? Last week was just an incredible Sunday. You know, all over the earth, the good news of Jesus Christ went forth. Last week, I just want to share this with you, that this, this house was full. Downstairs was full. And last week, about five people in here raised their hand for first-time salvation. About ten people in here raised their hand for a rededication, this commitment to follow Jesus as a disciple, not just merely as a believer, but as a disciple to change the way that they would follow and live their life. Downstairs, about eight children Visitors, family members, new people that came in raised their hands for first-time salvation. It was just an incredible, incredible week last week. Now, whether you've been a Christian now for a week or seven days or seven years or all your life, whatever it is, many times, if we're really honest, this idea creeps into our minds that now that I follow Jesus, that means that life is just going to work out. Now, life is easy. I did the hard part. I believe Jesus, and now it's all going to go well. And if we're honest, we're surprised that life still has trials. Maybe like me, you've had this thought, I'm following Jesus, and that means it's just all going to go well. Maybe like me, you've prayed this prayer, God, I, I, I tied this week. I didn't do the things I knew were wrong. I've been working hard to be the Christian I thought I was supposed to be. Why is this happening to me? And we're surprised that hardship is still an integral part of being a Christian. We're surprised that Jesus actually tells us to expect trials to still come into our life. Very kindly, I'd like to say to you in all love, 
what were you thinking? Last week you made a stand, a public declaration against the supernatural unseen powers of this world that you are going to follow Jesus and commit your life to him. And you think that that would take you off their radar. No. It makes you more highlighted. This is the message we don't say at Easter time. Then it gets harder after this point. But it's a life worth living. Would you just stand with me as we read our guiding scripture today? As many of you know, uh, but to bring all of us up to speed, we've been on this series in Ephesians going verse by verse, thought by thought. And we're walking through Ephesians very, very slowly. And we're in the very end, chapter 6, and we're in a kind of a mini-series in the series right now on spiritual warfare and walking through each part of the armor. But before we read that, I just want to read to you out of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going to go through as if something strange were happening to you. Verse 19, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then... After the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes with the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Amen. You can take a seat. John 10.10 is a verse we're so familiar with. The part that we always gravitate to is Jesus. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. But in this John 10.10, this one verse, we get Satan's mission statement. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Satan's goal from the beginning of time is to kill you. There's no other way to put it, no way to soften it. You must hear the harshness of this, this statement. Satan's goal is to murder you. Satan's goal is to extinguish your life. Satan's goal is to separate you from the eternal life, the abundant life, the satisfying life that you can have as a disciple following Jesus Christ. If he's able to dissuade you, if he's able to stop you, if he's able to separate you, then he has accomplished his mission. He wants to take what God has given to you as a free gift. Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan. 
And he did that by giving you a way to have an abundant, abounding, overflowing, joyful, full to the brim, a glass of iced tea, sitting on the porch, swinging, watching a rainstorm coming in kind of life. Jesus came to give you a life to the full, and Satan doesn't want you to have any of that. John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, when he lies, speaking of Satan, when he lies, it's consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Just to remind you, you're in a war. You are fighting an enemy that is actively pursuing you to kill you and to cut you off from the abundant life that God wants you to have. Last week, not just this church, but my whole Facebook feed was all my pastor friends and all my Christian friends and all my ministry friends just sharing all the pictures of what God was doing in their services of Easter service. Pictures upon pictures of families and friends who just standing in front of a photo wall. Pictures on pictures of full parking lots. Pictures on pictures of snippets of clips speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you think that Satan was not prepared for that? Some of you had the hardest week you've ever had. Some of you are watching online today because it was too hard of a week to get up to come to church and be in person. Some of you had a miserable week. That's all in accordance with what Satan wants to do. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the parable of the good news like seed being spread out. And he gives all these situations of when the seed takes root and when it flourishes and when it gives back fruit. But listen to this one. In Matthew 13, verses 20, it says, The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. Belief is not the only thing in Christianity. We talked about this last week. Belief is the first step in discipleship. Belief is the first step in a way of life. Your Christianity cannot stop at only saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my King, and then it never affects anything else in your life. That is a shallow root. It's on rocky soil, and you are in danger to Satan's ploys, the wiles of the devil. It continues like this. Since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. Satan is a great tactician. He knows warfare. He's been practicing it for centuries. He's a craftsman at his art. He knows all the methods that work to separate the believer from the good news of Jesus, to pull them away. Just because you've believed and asserted that belief in Jesus doesn't mean that you're still invulnerable to the attacks of Satan in your life. Which is what Paul is saying. Prepare yourself for war. The evil one in the evil day is going to attack you. Stand firm. Resist him. Put on the armor so that you will remain standing when the battle is done. Life is not easy. It gets harder from this point on. Be strong. He's not a fool, Satan. We like to call him a fool. We like to think he's stupid. But Satan is cunning and wise. And he knows how to get to the hearts of humans. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Do not be surprised as a disciple of Jesus 
when fiery trials come your way. Do not be surprised as a disciple of Jesus when life gets incredibly hard. We're not citizens of earth. Meaning that we are not participants in the ways of the world. In this current moment in time, Satan has authority that's been given to him to be the prince of the world. And so under his reign, he has power to affect your life. He has power to affect the people around you. He, and when Jesus meets the devil in this one-on-one combat in the desert, he had the authority to give Jesus authority on earth. I can give you all the power. I can give you all of these things, these earthly kingdoms. I can give it all to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Satan has authority here, and he has authority to work over your life. But you have authority that's been given to you too. Next week, Amy is coming and bringing a message on identity and how the authority comes from knowing who you are and knowing your rights as a kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, as a son or a daughter of Jesus. But this week, I want to talk to you about the first line that we get in the armor of God that is a full-on defense against what Satan is trying to throw at you. It's really interesting in, the, in this armor set that we only have one offensive weapon. The rest of it is all just to weather the storms and to, be, to endure to the end. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery darts of the devil. You have been given a shield of faith. Know today that trials are expected, but you are not left defenseless. You have been given, you have been equipped, you have been uh, led to know what the right things to do to protect yourself when hard times come. Last week we talked about 12 guys that were the closest to Jesus. They traveled with him and they learned from him and they worked very, very hard for years to become just like him. That was Jesus' 12 disciples. And during their time together they often encountered obstacles or hardships. Today, I want to study one of my favorite stories of a trial or a storm. And I, today, I want to tell you, talk about one of my, my favorite disciple of Jesus, which is Peter. So, for most of the rest of our time together, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Hey, this is a good place to just give a quick note. If you don't have a Bible, or you don't understand your Bible... You're like, it's a lot of these and thous and shouts, and I'm not exactly sure what's going on. There's a card in front of you that is a little gray card that says salvation on one side and next steps on the other. If you ever or you know somebody that needs a Bible, take that card, fill that card out, drop it in a black drop box, and we will make sure to get you a Bible because you need a Bible, friends. That's a couple weeks from now. We'll get to that later. Okay, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22. Immediately after this, immediately being that Jesus just feeds 5,000 people, just this tremendous day of ministry, maybe like Easter, a tremendous day, huge crowds, miracles happen, people just start following Jesus, this huge, huge day. Immediately after this, Jesus was tired. I told you last week I was going to take a nap in the sermon, and a lot of you were laughing because I kept saying, what are you going to do after this? I'm going to go home, and I'm going to nap. I was being for real. I was really tired. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat, cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Nightfall, night fell while he was there alone. 
And then in verse 24, we get this kind of movie-like cutscene word where trouble's afoot. It says, meanwhile, dun-dun-dun, like something's going on. There's Jesus. Like in your mind, can you just really put yourself into this story, guys? Use your imagination today. There's this incredible day of ministry. All of these things happened. Where did all that food come from? And Jesus says, get in the boat, go away. You all go home. He hikes up the hills. He finds this just beautiful place with the sunrise going down. The crickets are chirping. It's just wonderful. A breeze coming in. And Jesus is there just praying, communing with the Father and taking a nap. And it's wonderful. And meanwhile... You have the disciples that are rowing, and there's a storm coming, and all this. Wait, I haven't even got there yet. Let me read it to you. Okay, ready? Meanwhile, dun, 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 the disciples were in trouble far away from the land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. So there's Jesus having a great time by himself with the Father, but the disciples are out in a boat far away from land, far away from safety, and they're fighting for their lives. Heavy storms are coming. What a great day of ministry. Worn out, tired, all they want to do is to get to cross the lake, to a place to find a sleep, to a warm food. And all they want to do is go to sleep and just rejoice in what God was doing. But all of a sudden, a strong wind comes. Sometimes on the greatest achievements or greatest milestones in your life will be the greatest adversity that springs up right then and there. Man, God is moving my life. Man, I'm growing in ways I didn't even know. Man, everything's going well. Dun, dun, dun. Meanwhile, and trouble comes. But before we go any farther, I want to acknowledge whose fault the disciples, whose fault is it that the disciples are having trouble? Jesus insisted. God knows that storms are coming, but he sends his disciples out. Not like, wait a day, storms are coming. Not even like a wink, wink, you might want to bring your raincoat. He just, get the crowds out of here, you go too. Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross the other side. And so I wonder if it was you. Look at this. Verse 25, about 3 o'clock in the morning. So the disciples after dinner time get sent onto the boat. Jesus goes away to pray. Storms come up. They are fighting for their lives all through the night. I wonder if it was you at 3 a.m., if the thought would be running through your head, oh, Jesus, he sent me here. He did this to me. And you're like, no, 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 that wouldn't be. But, but honestly, a lot of times we are. God, aren't you the God that, like, breathed the universe out of, like, just breath? Didn't you make everything? Don't you have all the power? Why are you sending me here? Why are you forcing this to me? Why aren't you just taking this away? Jesus insisted. Being a Christian, don't be surprised when trials come your way. Don't be surprised when life gets hard. There are times in your life where Jesus will orchestrate and even allow you to go through a storm. Not all the times, not ever, always, but there are moments where Jesus wants to build your faith. And he will allow you to endure storm, to build your trust on him. You know, the last week we talked about becoming a disciple, where there's another verse in the, in the Bible that says, pick up your 
when I pause there dramatically, it's your time to just jump in with full force and respond because we are an interactive, expressive people. So there's another verse in the Bible where it says, pick up your Amen. And follow me. And so the first time Jesus comes to the disciples, he says, come, follow me. And then another time he says, pick up your instrument of death. Pick up your instrument of suffering. Pick up the thing that is going to hurt you the most and follow me. A couple weeks ago, we talked about a young man that did everything the Bible said. I've done everything. I've loved God. I've loved people. I've completed all of these rules. I've done everything the Bible says. What else do I have to do to have eternal life? Sell all your money. Sell everything. Give it all away. Come and follow me. Why? Because Jesus wants nothing to separate you from him. Maybe it's a, a thing like money. Maybe it's a certain way of life. Maybe it's just a hardship or a trial. But what is your faith dependent on? If life goes well, if God gives me what I want, then I will follow him faithfully. What will you do when the storms come? What will you do when the fiery darts of Satan pepper you? What will you do when trials come your way? Will you remain faithful? Jesus insisted that it would go. Paul, well acquainted with hardship and trial, spent much, wrote much of the New Testament out of jail. He says in his letter to Romans, he says, Romans 8, 35, he says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble, trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. Paul was able to come to a point in his discipleship to Jesus that he experienced the worst things in life, the hardest things in life, and would still be able to look at you in the eyes and say, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And it works both ways. Notice that. Notice that no trial or circumstance can separate him from the love of God, and nothing that he does can separate him from the love of God. God's love is all-pervasive. Saying this from the safety of a shore is one thing. But believing those verses that we just read in the middle of a trial, in the middle of a storm, is a completely other thing. When you are tried, your heart condition is revealed. There's another verse in the Bible that talks about hardships, and it's like, pound, like a blacksmith pounding metal. And when you pound metal, there's something that's called the dross that comes out of it. It's the impurities and the imperfections. And when you beat those out of it, the gold becomes pure. And so there is this refinement process to life about hardship comes and it refines you. It, it tests your heart. It brings out the dross, the things that are separating you, the things that are uh, discoloring your relationship with Jesus. And it makes it more pure, more hardened, more uh, trustworthy of God. 
And so do not shy away when you find yourself in a time of trial, when you find yourself in a storm. About three o'clock in the morning, verse 25, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. And in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. He said, take courage and I am here. At this point, again, the disciples have been struggling for hours, probably for their lives, against the raging waters. And all Jesus says is, no worries, I'm here. But if you were in that situation, you might want something more along the lines of, no worries, here's another ship to help you. No worries, I'll take care of the storm. No worries. I've got you, I'll save you. But all he says is to welcome them. He says, no worries, I'm here. But if you've ever been a child, and raise your hand if you've ever been one of those. Brian, thank you, okay. And if you've ever been a child, you know the power of presence. Last night, I heard a, in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m. And so I went to the kid's room and my son had fallen out of bed. And he fell in such a way that just knocked the wind out of him. He can't even breathe because the tears are, and he's just, and all I can do, and you've had the wind knocked out of you, all you can do is just hold him. So breathe, it's okay, I'm here. If you've ever been a child, you know the power of presence. We have a child that's incredibly scared of the night, of the dark. And so it's not uncommon to hear it. The hours are dwindling and kids are getting ready for bed. Just a, ah, from the upstairs. And all that means is that that kid got left alone. The other kids left them. And we know that all we have to do is to go up there. And as soon as we walk into the room, as soon as our presence gets close to him, as soon as that intimacy is restored, as soon as we get near to him, the fear goes. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. Some of you today may be in a storm. And I actually believe during worship, I think God was saying, there's a lot of you. They're going through a really hard time right now. Take courage, friend. Jesus is near. He's not left you. He's not abandoned you. He's not forsaken you. He's near to you. Take courage. He's near. Peter says, verse 28, calls out to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And this is one of the reasons I love Peter so much, because he's so stupid. <laughs> Who in their right mind in the raging river, and you're thinking, maybe that's Jesus, maybe that's a ghost. Well, tell me to get out of this place of safety and walk to you. But sometimes that's where the what were you thinking moment comes. And we do something that makes no sense. But Jesus meets him right where he is at. And so Jesus responds to him with, G with Peter's response. And you notice that Jesus wasn't the one that says, hey, Peter, get out of that place of safety. The only thing that's keeping you alive and walk to me. Peter asserts that. But Jesus responds to him where he needs to hear it. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and he walked on water towards Jesus. Peter responds in obedience. If the Lord puts you here by faith, take that next step 
that you feel God calling you to in faith. He will not let you down. You know, I woke up this morning and I turned on the shower, turned the knob, and to my surprise, water came out of the spigot. Later, I put my car key into my car and I twisted it, and to my surprise, the car turned on. You guys came in here and you, some of you got really mad at me because I roped off your section, and then you found another chair and you sat down, and to your great astonishment, the chair didn't collapse. Daniel Berrigan, and I can't read the actual quote, but this is really good. I heard this recently. He said, faith is really where your head is, nor is it where your heart is. Faith is where your butt is. And there's this idea of that faith, when does faith become faith? From safety, I can say, I believe you, Jesus. From safety, you can say, I, I feel like you're close. I feel like you will never leave me. But there's this element of faith of requiring you to get out in obedience and take a, take a step of faith where you can't save yourself. When you sit on a chair, what's the moment of faith in the chair that will hold you up? Is it the, that chair looks pretty sturdy, I think it will hold me? Um, is it right here where you still could stand up? Or is it the moment where you release all your weight and sit down and it's just on the chair to do its job? If you ever sat in a chair and it broke or it fell over, you know that it takes a couple times of testing that chair before you sit down again. But in all honesty, I bet not one of you thought about, will this chair hold me up when you came in and sat down today? Because we do it so much that over time it builds our trust into it that we know that it is faithful. We know it will hold us up. And I don't have to think about it. I don't have to uh, 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 question it. I don't have to assert my belief in that thing. I just know that it's the nature of, and the function of a chair to hold me up. And I don't expect it to do anything else. Just like I expect, I turn the water on, I expect it to come out. I turn my car on, I expect it to start. I sit down in a chair and I expect it to hold me up. And faith often, in James it talks about faith is not just belief. You must pair it with action. And here we see that Peter paired his faith with action. He started stepping out. And he walked on water. But then he allowed his eyes to be taken off of Jesus and he started focusing on circumstance instead of Jesus. He allowed fear to kick control of his life instead of faith. And he begins to sink. But Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Peter says, save me, Lord. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. He said, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? You all know that tone matters. If I came in and said, hey, how's it going? You could say, uh, I could say, hey, how, how's everything going? You okay? You could say, yep, it's fine. Or you could say, hey, how's it going? You could say, yep. It's fine. And tone changes things. And so maybe you hear this of it saying, Jesus reached out immediately and grabbed him, and he said, you have so little faith, why did you doubt me? And you could read that, and you could hear this tone of disapproval in Jesus of looking down at you like a disappointed parent saying, I can't believe that you screwed up again. I told you to get out of the boat. I told you to walk. I told you to follow me. 
But in the Greek, when you read this word and how the Greek is normally translated, this word for faith, it's translated as small faith, lacks confidence, it's soft, it's a kind or corrective chiding. Jack Hayford says it this way. He said that Jesus is saying you have underdeveloped faith. And it gives me this picture of a piece of fruit. Saying it's just not ripe yet. It's in the process of becoming. It's still becoming what it's supposed to be coming. It's just underdeveloped yet. It's still growing into what it's supposed to be. And this is a moment of faith building for Peter because he is still growing into the faith and trust that he is going to have. Years later, towards the end of his discipleship journey, approaching martyrdom and death, Peter wrote the book, First and Second Peter. And in it he says, Don't be surprised when trials are coming your way. And you see that Peter, over the course of his lifetime and developing a a life of faith and dependency on Jesus, comes to a place where he trusts Jesus is who he says he is. He trusts that when Jesus says, go here, he will be with him. That's the right thing to do. He trusts that Jesus is good, no matter the storm or the trial. This moment here when Jesus is talking to him, it's like when you're trying to teach your child to ride a bike. Inevitably, in those first few times, you'll be running by and you let go and the child's doing it and the child looks back and realizes that you're not there all of a sudden and then they crash. And you go up to him and say, why did you look back? You had it. You were doing it. You were going. Get up and try it again. And this is Jesus coming to Peter and he's saying, why? You live little faith. You had it. You were doing it. Why did you look down? Why did you let your fear take over you? So, friend, I say the same thing today to you. Don't look down. Don't let your fear control your life. Jesus is faithful to you even when you are faithless. He will remain steadfast to you. Don't look down. You've got it. Take courage. He's here. Keep going. Keep putting your faith up. Jesus will not disappoint you. Do not be discouraged if your faith proves weaker than you thought. God will meet you where you were at, and he is helping you on your way to who you are becoming. He is the kind and loving parent or father that is pulling you into the place that you are supposed to be. And he can use your circumstance for good. He can use your circumstance to grow you. He can use your circumstance and your trial and your storm to create a more stronger faith in you. He can grow you in pain. You know, when I think about times where I've grown the most in my life, where I've made major bounds in maturity, either emotionally or spiritually, almost always they were accompanied by unprecedented pain. I told you last week about some of the most painful, emotional, painful situations I've been in that wrecked me for about a year, that questioned, made me question my faith. And if I could look at you now and say, if I could go back to Josh pre-Mississippi and say, don't go there or go there, if I knew all that and I could stop myself, I wouldn't. Because even though those situations were painful and I don't wish them upon anybody, I knew that God was doing something in my life there. That he grew me through pain and suffering and that he did something in my faith that I couldn't understand and I couldn't understand it. 
unless I had been faithful through that circumstance. Jesus is doing something in your storm, friends. James 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity of great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Matthew 14, verse 32, it says, When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. The storm and the trial of faith, the lack of trust, the rescue from Jesus, all of this resulted in a deeper revelation of Jesus, a deeper trust in who Jesus was. In all of these things, their faith and trust and relationship grew. Man, you guys can make your way out here. Ephesians chapter 6 says, In all circumstances, take up your shield of faith, which can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. Church, would you just stand with me right now as we just spend a few minutes closing responding to the word today? You know, it's interesting that it says that the shield of faith, specifically, it extinguishes the fiery darts thrown at you. In medieval warfare and Roman warfare, the fire of an arrow was almost more damaging than the arrow itself. Because it could go and it could grow. And it could take over a whole caravan, a whole person, or a whole town. It could light up and just grow. And so the interesting about shield of faith is that it extinguishes those lies, those things that Satan's throwing at you. And so you may be going through a trial, you may be going through a storm, and it may be going through a hard time right now, and the lie is that God's not with you, that he's not strong enough to take care of this, that you're here because you're disobedient, that God is some cosmic uh, bully that's trying to hurt you. And if you give credentials to that. It can spread and grow and wreck your faith and pull you away. Be strong. Be faithful, Christian. Let your faith be a barrier between you and what Satan's trying to do. Let your faith be the thing that's there and stand firm on the promises of God. Let your faith protect you from what Satan's trying to do.